Let me start by showing you this slide. The waiter says, would you like regular or decaf? Me or you sitting at the table, do you want me to tip you with real money or monopoly money? I'm sure there are plenty of folks here this morning who would agree with this meme. Decaf coffee is a poor imitation of the real thing, just like monopoly money is a poor imitation of real money. Yes, like I occasionally use monopoly money when I play monopoly, I occasionally drink decaf coffee, but it just isn't the same. Many consider decaf coffee to be a counterfeit of the real thing. Counterfeiting Counterfeiting is a major problem in our society, and most anything can be counterfeited in one way or another. But the things we consider most valuable, things like money, clothing, jewelry, paintings, these things are the focus of most counterfeiters. There's more profit to be made. And therefore, the items which are most valuable in our culture are often examined or tested to determine their genuineness before they're sold. There are experts who determine if a painting is real or not before it is sold. There are jewelers who test gold ring to make sure that it is actually made out of gold or that the diamond that is set in that ring is the real thing and not some fake diamond or uh, plated gold. Let me ask you a question. What is the absolutely single most valuable thing that exists on planet Earth? What is the absolutely single most valuable thing that exists on planet Earth? It is so valuable that everything else pales by comparison. What would you say that is? What is it? Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How many of you ever thought of that? Being the most valuable thing, the most valuable thing we can possess as human beings. Let me ask you another question. What one thing has been the most counterfeited thing throughout human history? Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Counterfeit Christianity is real. Counterfeit Christianity is real. Satan throughout human history has gone to great lengths to counterfeit the real gospel of Jesus Christ and to counterfeit what a life changed by the gospel looks like. He has gone to great lengths to make sure that the real thing is hard to find. He has done this through the development of thousands of different religions, through false teaching, and through very captivating leaders throughout history. With this in mind, how does anyone really know if their life or their lives have been changed by faith in Jesus Christ? How does anyone really know if they have been truly saved or not? The answer to this question is the same as asking, how do I know if my gold ring is really gold or the diamond in it is really a diamond or if that painting that I just bought is the real thing? The answer to that question is the same as the answer to those. The genuineness of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ must be examined just like a piece of jewelry or a painting is tested for their genuineness. Our Heavenly Father knew His children would be faced with devious attempts by Satan to play to the sinful hearts of mankind and draw them away to placing their faith in things that cannot truly save. And so throughout His Word, He calls us to examine ourselves. All through His Word, He says, examine yourselves. It is a common theological concept. A call to examine 
There are many passages, like I said, in God's Word that speaks to the wisdom of God's people examining, testing, or proving the genuineness of their hearts and minds. Here in Psalm 26, verses 1 and 2, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. What's he say next? Prove. What's, what's it mean to prove? To test. Prove, O Lord, true, prove me and try me. Test my heart and my mind. David wrote this psalm, and he's sure that his life is where it needs to be before God, but he still asks God to do what? Prove, to test the motivations of his heart and mind. And then we have psalm that is fairly familiar, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It says, search me, O God. What's he asking? Examine me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Here again we have David, the psalmist again, saying, look at me, try me, prove me. I want to know if there's anything in my heart that I don't see. How many of us here have things in our hearts that are, not, uh, that are sinful, that are part of our humanness, that we don't want there, that we don't even see? And here David is saying what? Please look at me, God. Prove me and try me. Then we have a longer passage in the, in the book of Haggai. And thus says the Lord of hosts, he's talking to Israel. Consider your ways, he says. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. God, through the prophet of Haggai, commanded the Israelites to evaluate their lives as to why all the work they've been putting in over the past year was coming to nothing. He says, you evaluate, look at what you did this past year, and now you know why I have not blessed you with what? A harvest. And what were they doing? They had been distracted. They had let God's uh, house, God's temple go to ruin. And what were they busy building? Their own houses. And he says, because of that, he says, I haven't blessed you. And you need to drop back and think about that and examine the New Testament also is fairly common to see the teaching that it's wise for God to ex- uh, for people to examine themselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 28. This is one that we're familiar with. It uh, concerns the the communion that we take here about once a month or so. He says, "I want you to do something before you take communion." What's he say? "Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup." Before we take communion, he says, we need to examine ourselves. And some of us take that out of context a little bit. We say we have to examine ourselves for sin and and stuff like that. That's true, but that's not the, the point here. The point here, which we find starting in chapter 10, is to examine yourself to make sure you are right with those who are in the body of Christ that you're taking communion with. It's limited. This context is limited. He says, you examine before you take this, because communion is the idea of unified body of Christ being unified under the cross of Christ. Amen? And he says, you're going to drink, you can drink judgment to yourself if you have broken relationships in the body and you still take communion while you have broken relationships. And he goes to the part to say with this, you stop taking the communion at that point in time. You stop doing what you're doing, and you go get what fixed first. 
that relationship. Don't take communion until the relationships that you have are fixed. He says, examine yourself. Then we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves. Here's the big one. To do what? To see whether you are in the faith. If I'm saved, why would I have to examine whether I'm in the faith or not? Why? We already know. Because there is what out there? Counterfeit Christianity. Test yourselves. Not just examine, but test. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless what? Indeed you fail to meet the test. Examine that your salvation is genuine. Examine that what you say you believe is the real thing. The apostle Paul, when he wrote this, was confident that most of the Corinthians that he was writing this letter to would get, come back in the positive. But he also understood that there were going to be people who would fail that test if they were to examine themselves and test themselves. God clearly desires His people to examine their lives to ensure their hearts, their minds, and actions give proof that they are where they need to be in their walk with Christ. The results of not examining your life could lead to discipline in our lives, to hindered fellowship with your Heavenly Father, or to a very sober realization that on the day of judgment, He is going to tell you that you don't belong to Him. And you say, what? There's going to be people who come before God who think that they're saved and God is going to say, I don't know you? Absolutely. Take a look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. This passage is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And basically, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a test of attitude, is a test of heart, it is a test of a practical living. It's a test of a Christian, what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. And at the very end, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's he say there? But the one who is obedient, the one who can test and look at that part of his life and say, look at, I, I, I see the obedience in my life. He goes on, on that day, on that judgment day, many, not a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And this is Jesus talking. Listen to what he says. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Can you imagine the hearts of those people? They've ministered. They've been part of the body. They've thought that they've possessed a relationship with Christ, and Christ is going to look at them and say, Nope, I never knew you. Let these verses settle on your heart. Let them probe deep into your heart. Jesus is so very clear here. There are going to be people on the final day of judgment who are sure they belong to Him, but they are going to find out that they believed a counterfeit gospel in one way or another. They're going to find out that they placed their faith in some other thing or some other person rather than Jesus Christ, even though they ministered in His name. Jesus didn't just speak these words for the benefit of those who were listening to him on that day. He preached his Sermon on the Mount where this warning is found for you and I also. He says, examine whether you're in the faith. 
Don't take it for granted. Don't think just because I walked down an aisle or because I said a prayer that you're saved. There's going to be something in your life that gives you proof, that gives you assurance, that tells you, I am. And he has revealed that to us in his word because he does not want to tell us, depart from me. Faith is talked about quite often in churches and among those who call themselves Christ followers. But often that faith is spoken about in a way where there is no concreteness to it. It is fluid and subjective. But we are going to find out that faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that changes life, has substance to it because it always results in a changed life. It's not subjective. It's not uh, ethereal in any sense. There is a concreteness to it. There is an objective tests that will appear that we can give ourselves when we look at our lives that will help us determine whether we truly are in Christ or out of Christ. We must understand, and I need you to listen to me here, there is no real subjectivity to what, what it means to have a changed life in Jesus Christ. It's not just, well, yeah, I kind of have this in my life and I kind of have this in my life. God doesn't leave us to be subjective about what these tests are. There are objective tests that apply to every person who has been truly changed by faith in Jesus Christ. All lives that have been changed by faith will begin to exhibit certain very practical day-in and day-out characteristics that bring confidence and assurance of our salvation and our relationship with Christ. Listen to All lives that have been changed by faith, by a genuine faith, will begin to exhibit certain practical day-in and day-out activities, thoughts, actions that give us assurance that we are truly saved by a genuine belief in Jesus Christ. And this is where our new series in the book of James, this is what it's all about. James lays out for us a picture of what a life changed by faith in Jesus Christ looks like practically. This series is going to lay out for us over the next number of weeks what a life looks like. It's objective. It's not subjective. He's going to say, if you want to know that you're saved, if you want to be assured of your salvation, here's what you will see in your life. And what we have to understand is all the things in James will begin to appear in everybody's life who is saved. You're not going to say, well, I don't have this, and I have this, and this is what I have, and this is... No, it is, this is what a picture in a practical manner of a life living for Christ, genuine salvation looks like. The whole book of James is that, from beginning to end. These common characteristics are easily observable in a person whose life is being changed by faith in Jesus Christ. And these characteristics can be found and can be used by each person to continually evaluate their lives. And there is one danger we must be aware of when we think of evaluating the genuineness of our faith in Jesus Christ. There is one danger. We must never forget that we, even after being saved by faith in Jesus Christ, will never perfectly find that we will always pass our evaluation. Are we all going to fail? Are we going to have this practical day in, day out, always? Are we going to have it right all the time? Absolutely not. We will never be perfect, but we will always be growing. We will never be perfect. We don't need to, every time we fail, turn around and ask ourselves, am I saved? 
That's not what it is. That's not what it is. It's a continued evaluation over long periods of time that grows assurance of our salvation. We must never be caught in the trap of doubting our salvation every time we fail. And let me give you an example here of a graph that kind of explains it. What is the general consistent direction of that graph over a long period of time? Up. But what do you see along that line? You see some really difficult times, don't you? That's the Christ-following life. That's the life. We are looking at this from a macro view, high-level view. Does my life over a period of time show that I am growing more Christ-like, that I am growing in these practical day-in and day-out things? It is not a straight line. Most of it, oh, wouldn't it be nice if the day we were saved, we did nothing but move straight forward to become Christ-like? No going up and no going down. We would just go straight forward. How many of you have ever done that? However, we have to understand, there is no such thing as this kind of life. A straight line across the bottom where you go up and you go down, you go up and you go down, and there is never any movement up. You see that straight line life that goes up and down like this on the bottom of the graph? It's not a life that is saved by Christ. Some of us struggle hard. Some of us struggle a little, but all of our lives will look like that. And then the day that we take our last breath, those who have, have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, we will come to realize, finally, that God is working in us and growing us more and more like Christ, even in the difficult times. Those whose salvation is genuine can never lose their salvation, and the genuineness of their salvation will, will be abundantly visible as they grow and mature. You don't have to guess. You will not have to guess if you are growing in Christ. Your life will change. Some lives will change very, very quickly. Some lives will take a lifetime to change. Not everybody's growth rate is the same, but everybody will grow. Everybody will change if you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I know this has been a long introduction, a new series in the book of James, but I wanted everyone here this morning to understand, to be on the same page, that there is a real necessity for the book of James in God's Word. There's a necessity for the book of James in God's Word. There are many forms of counterfeit Christianity outside the church and inside the church, and thankfully God knew His people would need practical ways to evaluate the genuineness of their faith. He knew there needed to be objective tests by which all who claim faith in Christ could test the genuineness of their faith over a long period of time. What a blessing this book will be to all of us. And there will be times that James really challenges us. He is going to get right in your face. One of the sermons I listened to this week, the pastor said this, James is going to pop up at some time in the book of James and give you a bloody nose with his fist. And you're not going to see it coming. You're going to be picking yourself up off the floor. You're going to be wiping the blood off and going like, whoa. And that's God getting your intention saying, let's evaluate. Let's look. I hope and pray that Sardis will be a stronger church in 2023 because of our study of James. I hope that in the stresses and the, and the struggles that we are going to have, all of us in the book of James, that we will be better when we come out of this series at the beginning of this year than we were going into it.
Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We praise your name for your word. We praise your name that we don't have to guess. We praise your name, Lord God, that you know that Satan wants to cause us to be confused. You know that our sinfulness is going to want to draw us to the things that he says is a proper relationship and not what you say. Lord God, I pray and ask that as we begin this series, that we will be strong enough to finish it. That we will not become discouraged. That we will, we will realize that you are showing us a picture of life in Christ that we can all use to find assurance of our salvation. That we can all use, Lord God, to evaluate and to test and to grow our lives in you. And Father, we ask as a church this morning that we would truly, truly want to grow no matter what the cost. Not only as individuals, but as a church so that we can reach out to the community that you've put us in in a way that they see in our lives, not just in our words, the genuineness of faith in Jesus Christ and how it changes lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn with me to James chapter 1. And we are going to go a long ways today. We're going to stay in James chapter 1, verse 1. Does that surprise anybody? Not at all. All right, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So, he's opening his letter. He's addressing his audience. I want you to notice the first word in this letter. It says, James. The question I want to ask you is, which James? Which James? There are actually four James in the New Testament. You have James, the brother of Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, who was an apostle. James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also an apostle. And James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot. And you can go on the internet or you can uh, do some studies in your own. If you want to find out where these James are mentioned in the Bible, I'll let you do that. We're not going to take time to do that today. And there has been much discussion about which James wrote this letter, and we are not going to spend time really looking at that discussion. But I do want to show you one reason why I believe James, the brother of Jesus, wrote the letter and how that sets the tone for our hearts as we walk through the letter that he wrote. I want to show you one reason why I believe James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this letter. One of the most compelling proofs for me that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this letter is the fact that the writer assumed everyone he was writing to knew who he was. He assumed when he penned the letter. He didn't say James, this James. He just said James. And many of you, we find that same thing in the church. A lot of times you will uh, you hear people saying, or there's conversations, they'll say, Pastor said this. Who do you all assume is that? Me. You assume that it's limited to what? One person. And so here we have a man who says, James. He had to be so well known that his audience knew he was, who he would be, 
just by his first name. The Bible is clear that Jesus had a brother named James. Mary and Joseph had other children, with James being the oldest. And we see that in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? He's in his hometown. They don't believe who he is claiming to be. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simeon and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And, and they took offense at him. Mary and Joseph, we understand, had other children. And James, because of his name appears first in the list, was probably the oldest. And Jesus' brothers were not believers. They were not believers. And we know that from John 7, verses 2 through 5. Now the Jewish feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers, what? Believed him. They grew up with him. They understood who he was. And they didn't believe him. We understand that who did this include? His brother James. However, Jesus made a special appearance to his brother after his resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. Then he, and that's Jesus, Appeared to whom after his resurrection? He appeared to James and then to the apostles. We know that this appearance changed James's life and that he became a believer. And how do we know? Because we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that he was in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And all these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. We were familiar with that. We've just recently finished the book of Acts, together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and whom? Jesus' brothers. Who would that have included? Why would James have been there? Because he didn't believe his brother? No, after Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection, James had his eyes open. James had his heart open. And now James is a believer. James is in the upper room. He is praying they don't know what's going to happen, and we know from our study in Acts that not long after this, the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. And from this time on, God grows James into a major leader of a very infant church. We find that Paul writes in Galatians that he went to the church in Jerusalem, the mother church at that time, at the beginning of his ministry to obtain a blessing about his ministry to the Gentiles. And when he gets there, he, he writes about this to the Galatian church. But I saw none of the other apostles except whom? James who? The Lord's brothers. What is James already becoming within the church? A very noted person. People know who James is because he is one of the leaders of the church at this time. And as we travel through Acts, uh, we got to Acts chapter 12, and this is the time when Peter was miraculously released from prison, and we find that James had become what we would call a senior pastor of Jerusalem by this time, in Acts 12, 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, shh, don't make a big deal about me being here, I don't want the neighbors being woke up, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to whom? James. Who do we know is a leader in the church named James the brother of Christ, and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. Already we see that not only is James saved, we see that James is uh, being deferred to, and he's, Peter says, you go tell James what is going on. You go tell James what is going on. 
And then in Acts 15, we find Paul coming to Jerusalem to have a council with the church leaders about his new Gentile believers. There is some debate and there's some discussion. And at the end of this council, we find that James was actually leading the council. Not only was he like the senior pastor, he was such a pillar of the church at that point in time that he was actually leading this major council. And it says, after they finished speaking, after Paul and Barnabas had finished speaking, James replied and said, brothers, listen to me. He gives some advice. And what does the church do? Follow James's advice. He had that much influence and that much power within the church. And then finally, in Acts chapter 21, at the end of Paul's last missionary journey, when he is in Jerusalem, when he arrives at Jerusalem, we see James is still there leading the church. This is at the very end of Acts, Acts chapter 21. And when we had come to Jerusalem, that's Paul, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to whom? To James. And all the elders were present. The way that that is put, who was the leading elder in the Jerusalem church? James was. Now keep this all in your mind. Keep all this this flow of how James didn't believe and then James believed. And James has come up now over the years, all the way through the end of Acts, and has become a major leader in the Jerusalem church. So keep that in your mind, and let's continue Who's the audience? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So who is the audience? The twelve tribes. The Jewish tribes. The audience tells us a lot about this letter. We know this is a letter written to the Jews who had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. There are a bunch of Jews now who had, because of persecution, had been spread throughout all of the Roman Empire. The dispersion. And we understand where that dispersion started in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, who was going to become whom? Paul, approved of his execution. Who was being executed? Stephen. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so what other churches existed at that time? None. Where had, this, where had the church started? In Jerusalem. This is the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So this is the beginning of the dispersion. So here we have James. As a senior elder, the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church, the church is being persecuted. A lot of the members of the church are run out of Jerusalem with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Who do all these people know leaving Jerusalem? Who do they know? James. Are they going to forget James when they leave Jerusalem? No. Who's their pastor? James. Are you starting to put it together? Why does James just say, James, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Because who would have known him? All the people who had been dispersed throughout the years from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. All these dispersed Jewish Christians would have known James because he was the senior pastor of their church. Their scattering led to the planting of many churches throughout the areas they settled in. 
And since these dispersed Jews left with little or nothing, uh, these churches would have been poor. They would have been enduring various trials, separated from their home church, and tempted by sinful pagan cultures they had fled to. They would not have been strong churches at this point in time. They would have been ragtag people meeting together in various places with real no leadership because the apostles stayed where? In Jerusalem. James would have heard about their struggles. You think word would have gotten back to James about where a number of his congregants had gone? Yes. Who had a pastor's heart? James. Out of his love and care for those of his flock who had been dispersed, he wrote this letter. This is a pastor who has lost a majority of his congregants. He does not know where they're all at. And he can't stop being a pastor. That's how much pastors love their congregations. They are tied to them. They care for them. They love them. And here we have a lot of his congregation being run out of Jerusalem, and they need help. They're weak, they're poor, they're being persecuted, and he is worried, he is concerned that in this state, in the pagan cultures that they went into, that they would start believing a counterfeit gospel or a counterfeit way of salvation. This is why I believe James, the brother of Jesus Christ, wrote this letter. He didn't need to introduce himself because he was writing to his dispersed congregation who knew him very well. He wrote this letter to help those he knew, loved to know practically how their genuine faith would reveal itself while living in pagan culture. He wrote this letter to them because he says, I want you to know how you are to behave, how you are to live as Christ followers, how you are to grow as Christ followers in the cities that you're at. He was teaching them. He was loving them. He was pastoring them. But sometimes we forget that they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have texting. They didn't have email. They didn't have Facebook or Twitter or anything like this to keep up with each other. He sent out a general letter as their pastor and so what we're going to see in James is a bunch of sets of instructions, one after another. And some people say, well, man, he's being pretty harsh, or man, he's being very short. He's being short because he's got a lot to say in a little space. In fact, it is so pointed that the book of James has more imperatives in it than any other book in the entire New Testament. There are 60 imperatives. An imperative is a command. There are 60 commands that James gives those congregants who are now on their own. He gives them 60 commands, one right after another. This is what a practical life live for Christ looks like in your city. They're objective. They're not subjective. And he touches on so many issues. He touches on heart. He touches on relationships. He touches on money. He touches on uh, priorities. He says, this is what you are to look like 
in the city where God has placed you. It doesn't make any difference if you're rich. It doesn't make any difference if you're poor. It doesn't make any difference if you're old. It doesn't make any difference if you're young. This is what a practical, lived-out, Christ-following life looks like. James was one of the last books added to the New Testament because James only mentions Christ twice, and it's at the very beginning of chapter 1. And a lot of people will say, well, this doesn't, this doesn't match. How come he doesn't talk about salvation? How come he doesn't talk about justification? These people, his congregants, already knew all of that. They'd already been taught that in their church. So he is writing a letter assuming that the people he's writing to are already what? Familiar with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Familiar with what salvation is. Familiar with their need of Jesus Christ. And he says, okay, since you know this, I'm not going to take any more time to talk about this, I'm going to show you with 60 commands of how your life will change because you know who Jesus Christ is. I'm going to give you 60 commands of what your life is supposed to look like. And in those 60 commands, all of us can look at those commands and say, how do they fit in my life? How do they fit into my life? Can those objective commands become tests for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. I want you to know something else about that verse. We skipped over a line there. It says James, and we dropped down to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. I want you to know that James is a caring pastor. Look at how he describes himself. Everybody knows this James, the brother of Jesus, but he describes himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it very interesting that he doesn't write, James, the brother of Jesus Christ, who saw the risen Savior, your pastor and leader of the largest church in the world. He doesn't describe himself like that. James comes to his dispersed people, those that he loves, with the humility, the mark of a pastor who cares for his people. He comes to them as a fellow servant of the God and Savior they all had in common. And we must not miss the importance of what James writes here. James was an important powerful, revered man of God, the leader of the biggest church in the known world at that time. But he only saw himself as a servant of God and a Savior, Jesus Christ. He only saw himself as a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. And we don't have a concept of servanthood like they did. In the first century, everybody knew what a servant was because they were prevalent throughout all of Rome. They understood that servant lives belonged to their masters they served. They didn't have control of any area of their lives. Their families belonged to the master. Where they lived belonged to the master. They had no say in what tasks they were assigned. Their practical day-in, day-out survival was completely dependent on whom? Their master. They had no real identity of their own. They belonged to master so-and-so. That's what a servant's life was. Their situation wasn't always bad. There were kind and generous masters in Rome, but even then, if that kind of master died, the master who would inherit them, notice what I said, the master who would inherit them may not be as kind and generous as the one who died. They were completely at the whim of whom? Their master. And that's the word that James says, I am that kind of servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
James's identity was not tied up in his position. His identity was not tied up in his power or his accomplishments. From his perspective, his identity was that he was a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, that's my identity. And I want you to understand something. That's our identity. That's our primary identity. James knows a large portion of his flock are struggling, and he comes to them as a caring, humble pastor. He wants them to be like him and see themselves as humble servants of Jesus Christ, submitting every aspect of their lives to Jesus Christ, which means no matter what your situation, you still live out these commands. You still behave in this way, no matter what God has you, no matter what city God has you in, this is what a Christ follower's life looks like, no matter the situation. He knows they need a picture of what Christ like living looks like. He knows they need practical direction on how to relate to one another, how to spend their money, how to respond to trials, how to live their lives in public, how to guard their tongues, and what things to avoid in a pagan culture. He says, I want, as your pastor, to show you what a, a practical picture of what it means to behave like a Christian in a pagan culture. What kind of culture do we live in? A pagan culture. Do we need that same picture for our lives? Absolutely. He knew the temptations they would face to compromise with the pagan cultures they lived in. And so as a caring pastor, he writes a letter knowing he will probably never see many of these church members again, and he lays out what a Christ follower's life looks like each and every day. Can you imagine the pain of this pastor's heart? Knowing that he will probably never see a majority of these people who were dispersed again. He would never have real contact with those that he loved. And so he's writing from his heart, as a servant of God, this is what you need to look like when you live where God has you. These guidelines do give a practical picture of the life in Christ, but they also serve as tests, as I said, to validate genuine faith. This letter from James is so applicable to us today because, as I said a minute ago, we live in a pagan culture. We live in a pagan culture. We are going to be tempted to compromise with that culture. We need practical instruction on how to live each day as servants of Jesus Christ. And James's letter will help us start 2023 with those things in mind. What a way to start a new year. Being challenged by a humble pastor who lived in the first century, who grew up with our Savior, experienced his death and resurrection, who gave his life not to his brother, but to his Savior. He did not ever bow to his brother. He bowed to his Savior, Jesus Christ. You never see James ever say anything about being a brother to Jesus. You only see James saying, he's my Savior. He is my Master. He is my Lord. Let me ask you this. Do you first and foremost see yourself as a servant? Honestly. This is like one of the first looks in the mirror that you're going to get all the way through James. We're going to be looking in that mirror. Do you really first and foremost see yourself as a servant? That everything you have, all the priorities you have, everything in your life revolves around your master, not you. Not your plan, not your retirement account, not your job, not how well you play ball or don't play ball, no matter what. Do you see yourself primarily? Is your identity 
primarily that of a servant. Because that's what our first priority is in our lives, is to be a servant. And a servant to the same man that James was a servant to, our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you say, I'm a servant of Christ, and I'm a servant of this, and I'm a servant of this? You're looking at a false gospel, folks. You're looking at a counterfeit gospel, because if you're a servant of Jesus Christ, you are only one thing, and one thing only, and that is a servant of Jesus Christ. And everything in your life revolves around what your Master and Lord says. Everything we are is tied up in Jesus Christ. Everything we have is tied up in Jesus Christ. Every choice is made with Him in mind. Every response to every situation is made with Jesus Christ in mind. Every response that we have to anything that happens in our lives first must come thinking in this way. What will my master want me to do here? On every response to everything that we encounter in life, what does my master want me to do? Because did they live like that? Did the servants live like that in Rome in the first century? Could they just pop off at their master? Could they just walk away and and take a day off and take an extra long break because they wanted to? Every aspect of their life... Every decision of their lives was made with what question? What would my master want me to do here? Do you find you li- yourself living that life? If we do not see ourselves as servants, as John saw himself, then we may have come to a place where we are the master of our own lives. And if we are the master of our own lives, then we have placed our faith in a counterfeit gospel and will one day hear Jesus Christ himself say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I hope and pray this series will help all of us begin 2023 by examining our lives, our hearts, our minds, in light of a practical guideline for living out a genuine faith. I hope that none of you miss any parts of this series because it is, It is so important for us to learn, to grow in a a way that we see ourselves as nothing but servants and every aspect of our lives is subject to what the Master wants. And we get a good picture of what the Master says our lives should be like in the book of James. What he writes will challenge us, convict us, and even sometimes downright hurt But it's through this letter that we will all grow and mature into better servants, into better faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Why do we desire to mature in our faith? Why do we desire to see what James is writing? Because we don't want a counterfeit Christianity sneaking its way into Sardis Baptist Church or into our individual lives. And because being servants of Jesus Christ is worth it, our salvation is what? the most important thing, the most important item that is in existence on this planet. And many times we don't see our salvation in that way. We see our salvation as being something that God has given me and now I can make decisions, I can do this, and we forget that we're just servants. Please bow your heads for just a minute. Father God, there are people in this congregation who are growing and 
when they go through the book of James, they're going to see weaknesses and they're going to even maybe be hurt sometimes, but they're still going to walk out at the end of James and into this series and say, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm a Christ follower, that I am a servant of Christ because my life has been growing in that direction for a lengthy amount of time. And Father, we praise your name for every single person here this morning who will come out at the other end of this series stronger and more assured of their salvation. Thank you for that. Father, there will also be people in this congregation this morning and in congregations to come in the following weeks who are going to look at their lives and say, I need to change some things. I I know I'm a, a Christ follower. I'm assured of that. I see myself growing, but there are some areas that I need to work. And Lord, we ask that you would not allow them to become discouraged, that you would allow them to be thankful and to rejoice that through the book of James, you have shown them weaknesses in their walk as Christ followers. And Father, we do know that there are also people here this morning who are not saved. Some maybe who have never claimed salvation and others who feel they are saved, but Father, their lives don't show it. They're going to find out as we move through the book of James that they don't test well. And Father, I pray that nobody here would ever hear those words, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I pray, Lord God, that you would change lives. I pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen lives. And I pray, Lord God, more than anything else, that this church would be a light to the community because they see us live Christ day in and day out. In Christ's name, amen.